Hello, documentarians. So glad you could join us here for episode four of Documenteers, the podcast where me, myself, I, and a rotating cast of documentaries discuss and review something that we all love and what we love are documentaries about anything and everything. Stuart returns for this one to discuss with me a movie he was not excited about seeing. It's a downer, but personally I find his apprehension kind of funny. I knew when he reacted cautiously to the proposition of watching A Gray State that this is one we should watch for my twisted casual amusement and maybe yours. It does get dark though, but I have a feeling in the future our docs might get even darker. Usually I take this time to apologize for something in the episode, like maybe keyboard taps or coffee sips. Mic bumps are frustrating, I know. But I like some of the sounds. They're like action sounds, foley art. We're keeping it busy while we delve deeper and deeper into the film hole. Get raw with us. If you want to contact us, you can always email us at documenteerspodcast at gmail.com or harass us on Twitter or Instagram at documenteers podcast. Maybe I'll actually post something on social media by the time I put this episode up. So get in on this before it blows up and you can brag to all your film buff friends that you've been listening since the beginning. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and most podcast apps. A free and easy way to support the show is numero uno, subscribe. We need and love subscribers. Numero dos, Rate us on your app's archaic five-star rating. Think of it like a charitable act. Not one star, not two, not three, not even a respectable four, but five stars is an easy way to contribute to the show, finding the listeners it needs. Numero tres, write us a review alongside that five-star rating. Keep it simple. Say anything. A sentence of positivity. Or maybe some Werner Herzog erotic fan fiction. You know some exists. And you know I'm definitely going to Google that later. Do these generous things and know that in my heart, you are a true documenteer. Stay warm and stay sweet. Now, here is a motion picture film. A thousand feet. 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. I'm here because I like you. Okay, okay, okay. You have a great face. Thanks. I mean, people have complimented me on my voice for years, but when I'm hearing myself while I'm editing these things... To me, I sound like I snorted a bowl full of milk and took shots of gravy. Like, it drives me. <laughs> I'm not hearing myself the way others are saying they're hearing me. We might take a break so I can blow my nose. When I um, first approached you with the idea of doing this movie, I knew nothing about it. I had the – this is this will be mark our third Netflix movie. And we – in I believe this will be the fourth episode. And based upon what I read, I just conveyed that to you. I didn't know anything more other than that. And your reaction was... Well, I think I had a notion of what it might be. And I I, I definitely... Uh, it wasn't exactly what I thought either. Yeah. I mean, it, I feel like it. there was a little bit I thought it would be. But then the way it was laid out, 
because I wasn't sure what we were going into. Angela and I, we do the true crime movies, yeah. and we watch this together. And she thought, well, this sounds like a true crime movie. Maybe technically it is in some ways, but it wasn't like laid out like a true crime movie. There wasn't a bunch of endless interviews with detectives and talking about forensics or like trajectories of bullets and shit like that, how true crime docs will be. So I was kind of thankful for that. So I think it definitely works for something that we would watch. But you were not too enthralled, I guess, maybe because you thought this movie would be pretty depressing. Yeah, I was not enthused. And, and you, I, and you weren't wrong. <laughs> I, th- I think I was more right than I was <laughs> than I was thinking. <laughs> and but I think this movie is depressing. I really had to sell you on it, and then I had to be like, "Well, we'll go to the beer hall and get German food after." And then you like perked <laughs> up. Yeah, I was, I was pretty convinced that this would be kind of a right right wing treatise. Is that the word? Yes. So. I didn't think I knew that it would have that element, but not necessarily, not necessarily like that's how you dom- kind of a- sold it to me. You were like, it's about <laughs> conspiracy theories, but not necessarily, but more objective viewing of that, not necessarily directly. That we should watch small change sometimes. That's not that's not necessarily a right wing, but uh, <laughs> but when do you think we'll get to small change? I don't Jeez, we're getting much small change. Too. I'm pretty sure it's about. Well, we can hold on it for a while, but you know, we got to tackle every documentary ever at some point. Yeah, and you think that my expertise lies in what? In 9/11 trutherism. In basically in nutbags and. <laughs> I mean, you're n- and filmmakers. Yeah, filmmakers. Yeah, th- this this is a story of a filmmaker. That's right. And by the way. What's up, Docs? That's Docs with an X, not a CS. This is Documenteers. Documenteers. And you may not have been enthralled about this one when I told you about it, but but if you're going to be a documenteer, you got to roll with the punches. You never know when the New World Order is going to come down on you and force you to review documentaries you don't really want to watch. And you need to be able to roll with those punches and come out on top. That is what podcasting is really about, right? That's the right. New world order. The new world order. This is part of it. I've already, I've been getting offers to buy your RSS feeds. Yeah, to buy my RSS feeds from the new world order. <laughs> a man in a mask. You can't. It's all dark. Like, I would like to pay you seventy five dollars. <laughs> Not very high. I'm going to hold out. <laughs> yeah, maybe the price will keep rising. <laughs> <laughs> but the film we are discussing today is called. It is uh, yet another Netflix film called uh, Gray State by director Eric Nelson. Executive producer is. Yes, yes, your favorite. Werner Herzog, our favorite. <laughs> the, the documenteer's deity himself. I think I'm a bigger fan of uh, his protege, Errol Morris. I love Errol Morris, uh, too. Have you seen the trailer for Wormwood? Have you watched any of Wormwood? I started watching Wormwood. Yeah, I don't know when we're going to get into the series, Docs. It seems like we need to kind of get settled in the waters of feature films before we figure out how to tackle those. But, right. but yeah, I am excited to watch that. And it's half 
feature film. Now, Errol Morris, I have... Yeah, this is a lofty film yes. project for him, for I, sure. I have two pet peeves when it comes to documentaries. And both Werner Herzog and Errol Morris defy those pet peeves by showing good examples of them. Right. One pet peeve is directors putting too much of themselves into their movie. But Werner Herzog does it all the time. All of his movies are about him. There's a way to do it, though. And I think he does it well. Yeah. And I, I think it's a, there's a difference between him and a, and a Morgan Spurlock. Yeah, that's a very bad example of it. But Werner, just, it's just his personality. such a unique and prolific character that he gets away with it. you got to know what you're getting into when you're sitting down with the Werner Herzog movie. Yeah. My second pet peeve is recreations and people setting up. I've seen somewhere, like, it just comes off bad, like, like a bad Dateline recreation. But Errol Morris... Does recreations, I feel like, better than most people. Have you seen Thin Blue Line? Yes. Yeah, so that's that's the marker. That's like his high point, I think. You look at that and you get an idea for what, what he's doing at his best. Well, we are talking about a gray state. Gray state is about this dude, David Crowley. Same last name as Aleister Crowley. Coincidence? Yeah, it's just a coincidence. I don't know, is it? Should have done research into that. <laughs> <laughs> we we're introduced to this guy he's talking well we hear his voice he's talking into the camera we hear the audio of it and he's preparing i guess a scene but he's preparing alone it's like he's hyping himself up to do something and then it cuts to what looks like a SWAT team barreling through some street and then you quickly realize that they are they are actors and this guy is making a film well, at first right. you think it's a film. What it actually turns out to be is a trailer for that he wants to get funded for a movie called Gray State. Now, there he's this guy's got all of his friends involved. Danny Mason, he was an actor, co-star and friend. He apparently the co-creator of this project. He, he apparently like owned the part of it. And Joseph Seaton, who he was like the bald dude, and he had very intense eyes. Those are the two names. And he had and his brother and his father appear in this movie as well. David has a wife and daughter. I noticed you wrote in my notes Yoko Ono question mark. I thought you wrote that. Oh, okay. And you well, let's be let's clarify who Yoko Ono is. She's John Lennon's uh, widow. Right. Often blamed for breaking up the Beatles. That's overblown. That that band was on its way out, let's be honest. Absolutely. Which uh, is the second time we've mentioned Yoko Ono. R.E.M. references and Yoko Ono references. Let's make a point of mentioning when we mention things and numbering them. <laughs> yes, that would be the second time on that one. That's the first time we've mentioned how we're going to mention things. I think we mentioned... This will be the third time if I mention it again. This will be the second time that we've mentioned that we've mentioned R.E.M. And the first time fourth. that... Well, that makes it the fourth time. And the first time we've mentioned that we've mentioned Yoko Ono? I don't know. I think we've mentioned R.E.M. a lot more than you're, than you're mentioning. Gray State... You might want to go back and number <laughs> the amount of times that we've mentioned R.E.M. Gray State is a f meant to be a fictional film of caution against the New World Order. David is prone to conspiracy theory, kind of in the, I guess you could call it the far right, but not like, I wouldn't call him like a Turner Diaries type. I don't know if you've heard of the Turner Diaries. It's basically like New World Order apocalyptic story, but it's explicitly racist. It's what Timothy McVeigh read and shit like really? that. Yeah. That. It's like a David Icke's kind of thing. Who's David Icke? Now, David's film, Gray State, it's, David is into kind of survivalism. He fears a police state and the New World Order. I think that David worships at the altar of one Alex Jones. 
That's right. Alex Jones, he's been in this conspiracy theory game for a long time, but now he's kind of at his peak. When Donald Trump won the presidency, he called Alex Jones and thanked him for all the help. Alex Jones, I don't delve into Alex Jones. I know who he is on the surface level. But a big criticism about Alex Jones is the claims he makes. One of the more outrageous ones being that the parents of the kids in the Sandy Hook massacre are crisis actors. He thinks they're fake and that they faked. Right. And I know Alex Jones as... uh cast member of the movie Waking Life. <laughs> That's right, from 2001. Ranting and raving like a lunatic into and, a microphone. And, and he still continues to do so. Now, Alex Jones is supposed to be in lockstep with this anti-police state, which he used to he used to talk about a lot. But considering now he's in full-fledged support of an administration that's in power that once talked about marching soldiers into Chicago a president who describes himself as a law and order president. So Alex Jones is now kind of up the administration's ass. He's kind of like pro-police state now. It kind of contradicts a lot of his previous claims. But David, uh, the way he thinks is a lot in lockstep with this Alex Jones way of thinking. We are kind of approaching a police state. Our police are over-militarized. Our country over-incarcerates people. But it seems like the police state is more the boot is on the neck of those who are maybe more impoverished, more people that are marginalized, minority communities. Like, that's where the police state is really taking form. It's not, to me, I I never think of the police state like, oh, they're going to come into the suburban homes of these uh, affluent survivalist white people and just take them all out the police state would take out people that no one would even talk about yeah at at its current at its current (laughs) incarnation yeah accurate there and uh i don't know what alex jones i don't know where he's coming from now i think it's more about uh selling his uh protein bars or whatever if alex jones was ever he's one step away from thumping a bible and ranting and raving like one of these uh televangelists so If Alex Jones was ever serious about what he talked about, he's pretty much at a point where he's just now profiteering off this concept and this idea. And and that profiteering, we'll get into later, as David himself will reference this. David was in the Army, and and his personality is that he is laser-focused, obsessive. He he puts his mind to doing something, and he goes 100%. And you see that trait in his wife, Kamel, who he marries later. She has the same kind of mentality, 100% into what they decide to do. Got a laser-like focus. And part of the drive of this documentary, you see David himself presenting the material for the film that he's making, Gray State, and for, as it turns out, his life's trajectory in the documentary a gray state so we're talking about two different films much like the last episode (laughs) right and if to make things more confusing both films are called gray state the documentary however is preceded by the letter a a a gray state a gray state now david has full support of his wife they seem very connected he actually seems like a pretty good dad we get to a part where they talk to david's father and they ask him about kamel and he can't get the sentence out. He starts tearing up. Then we start going into a story. That's the point where you start to realize something Something's has wrong. gone wrong or is going to go wrong. And this movie is not the movie I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be inspirational. Really threw me off. This is where 
I started to realize that things were going to get dark. I thought it was a gay states. I, th- I thought that's what it was called. So I was emotionally prepared for a completely different movie. And so I sat down and started watching this. And I realized when they get to this point I'm about to get into, I was like, oh, this is not what I thought it was. I'm going to put on my shirt and be a little more serious now. But neighbors, they see Christmas gifts piling up on the front steps of the Crowley home. And they hear the dog. They hear the dog for the first time in, the, in a while. So they go over. Eventually, the neighbor looks in the window, and he sees three bodies. On January 17th, 2015, police are sent to the house. That's 10 days before my birthday. Coincidence? Yeah. Was it? Yeah, it was just coincidence. <laughs> the police go in. They see they see the bodies. They see the words, Allah Akbar, which means, yes, God is good, scrawled in blood on the wall. A Quran lay between them, which were not in the police photos. The, the journalist kind of came across these. And they also found 22 terabytes worth of information strung together on multiple hard drives. And this was stated by the guys, one of the guys who does YouTube videos, talking about the conspiracy uh-huh. of this murder. Uh-huh. But he, he said it was written in Kamel's blood. Right. And this is the point in the film where the documentarian makes a conscious choice. I am going to fuck with the audience now. I am going to make you think that what's happening is something entirely different. And that's the only reason we have this film. Because if we just laid out what happened, it's pretty cut and dry at this point. Yes. Yeah. It would be like kind of a basic true crimey type film. Although I didn't have much doubts as to what happened, and I'll give you the reason later as we get to it. So they, there's these two guys that are discussing what really happened with David Crowley, and there's this dude named Greg Ferdandez who says he doesn't care about credibility. What he doesn't is, care about credibility. He said he doesn't care about credibility. In reference to who? I don't know. I think in terms of any – I'm assuming that it means that anyone that contradicts what he thinks and they're using credibility, like, say, the police department – to contradict what he, how he thinks of the situation. Well, he doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about that credibility. Right, and I think that the documentarian kind of uses these guys as foils to call to really kind of push us in a way where we're thinking that these guys are kind of demented in their own way or delusional in their own way. We move on from them fairly quickly because I, I thought that's this, not the interesting thing. Yeah, I, I, I was a little worried that this movie would be too much about the conspiracy after. The deaths of the family. Right. We move away from that pretty quickly. Which I was very thankful for. I don't know if it would have served it well to just lean on that too hard. We know something bad has happened. The wife, David, and their daughter, who was adorable, uh, is deceased. It cuts to David. He He goes to Afghanistan. He's in Afghanistan. It cuts to him playing a really cool song on a guitar. <laughs> yeah, and we also learn, I think, at this point that the police think that David killed his wife yes. and his daughter. David made a high school film called The Decline, which seemed very similar to what he would try to make later. But, of course, it was made by teenagers. His brother stated that the movie Black Hawk Down, as well as the events of 9-11, kind of inspired them to join the army. And there, they firsthand witness the horrors of war. And they become rather disillusioned seeing what the U.S. was doing in Iraq at the time. And at this point, we can all kind of look back and see that 
that was not a good thing. It pretty much destabilized the shit out of the Middle East. And they saw that firsthand. So, And I appreciated this aspect of it. It kind of humanized them in this certain way. Where it wasn't just like, they're not these right-wing nuts that are like cop wannabes or something that just sit behind their computer. They actually, the way their mentality came from actually experiencing these types of things directly. Right. And they saw that the U.S., how the U.S. and the decisions made by those in power can be not a, not a positive force for good in the world. And it really changed their views. And the brother made it a point to point out that they felt like that anyone who kind of knee jerk and like over support of what we were doing in Iraq was complicit in what we've done there. Now, we're old enough to remember when the U.S. was rallying to go into this war. Right. There wasn't a lot of voices out there in the media that were saying this is a bad idea. I did at the time. Most thinking people, most thinking people I knew at the time were leery of the idea of going into Iraq. It just didn't it seem like it didn't make sense. It still doesn't make sense. Put us into a situation where we're just in perpetual wars and that's just accepted now. He meets a woman named Kamel. One of the friends, the the wild-eyed one, I'm forgetting his name. He talks about Kamel with a little bit of disdain. He talks about how she goes from that she was Muslim and that suddenly she was Christian. I think he tried to allude that she was like a phony or something. And it's interesting what the friends say about Kamel as a, and what the family says about Kamel and what uh, Kamel's co-workers at this dietitian center say about her as well. Yeah, they all have different views. Of- and it doesn't delve too hard into this, but that friend states that David did not care for Islam based upon aspects of what he had seen when he was overseas. He he said he very much liked the people there, but was very much against what he saw as a system of oppression. David gets redeployed after he gets married to Kamel. And he's surprised because apparently they had said that his last tour was supposed to be his last tour. And this happened to a lot of people. Many people served multiple tours they were just kind of recycling the same people over and over two i think it was kind of the norm it's... yeah but there were gosh you hear reports of five plus tours some people took during yeah. this time it wasn't a lot of options for a lot of these people they were just they told them to go and they had to go david newly married uh did not want to leave and he that only adds to his more disgruntled nature his wife was also pregnant with their daughter ronnie crowley he does eventually come home from this tour of door duty and enrolls in film school in minnesota in 2009 the filmmaker is also playing clips for people that he's interviewing and sometimes audio right because our hero david crowley (laughs) much like jim carrey in our last episode asked to be filmed constantly right so you see we see him making the film and he's in character. That scene where David calls himself Andy, it was pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, David is playing David Crowley. That's what I think. You know, he's he's put he's got his own kind of mask that he's showing as the guy in control, as the one, you know, that knows what's happening, that knows how to make things happen. All yeah. his friends talk about him like this is a guy who you know, we all looked up to and he always knew the right situation, like right way to handle things and you got the vibe that maybe all the friends didn't see everything the way he did, but they all respected his drive and his willingness to accomplish things. His friend is watches the execution scene 
that David had made for the Grey State trailer, he openly acknowledges that it's weird and creepy because they were really into the <laughs> He was so into the execution scene yeah and the explicit nature of the violence once telling a police officer who was monitoring the shoot you gotta stop me if you feel like i'm going too far because i'm gonna go as far as i need to and maybe more so you just let me know okay yeah david is a bit of a ghoul at this point Uh, after his maybe second tour of duty we we began to think that well obviously things didn't go very well I kept waiting for some something to kind of rescue my inner narrative of where I thought this film was going. I was looking for – I'm an optimistic person. I tend to look for that silver lining, but everything is gray. Everything and is a gray state, you might say. Everything is in a state, the state of Minnesota. If it's a color, it's gray. There's a lot of gray overcast days that they're shooting on. Mel is very connected to David and his project. She's at the table offering critiques about story. But this movie, he's just shooting the trailer. And he wants to present that trailer to get funding. Right. He doesn't have a script. What David has, and I've mentioned this earlier, is a wall covered with sticky notes of possible ideas for a storyline. It looks like he's trying to hunt down the Zodiac Killer, but, yeah, he's really just laying it's out a script. a script. This is a, a massive thing with strings attached to different points, and there's a there's a narrative, or there's a basically a, a scene we keep going back to of David in front of this wall of sticky notes where he's explaining every notion that he has about this story in a very kind of vague and overarching terms. He's like, this is the point where this... Where the hero has the idea that something might not be right. He says all these foreboding things that are just <laughs> right. a little too perfect for our documentarian. Eric Nelson. Eric Nelson, which I don't know much about. Did you, do you know anything about No, him? I should have looked up more. But he's buddies with Werner now. That's all that matters. Yes. We start to see people being interviewed with their thoughts on Kamel. I think the family views her as someone who's a very capable and independent person. And some friends, including the one she knew at where she worked as a dietitian, kind of viewed her more as a puppet, an extension of whatever David was doing, like she was being manipulated. I feel like their personalities were very similar. It's kind of hard to say how much, like, she was being manipulated. I think there definitely was some manipulation because David's personality would, as we get into later, would become extremely strong. And he wasn't probably the kind of guy that really liked being told no to, you know. Right. And I think that she was the type of personality that's just going to be supportive of any spouse or relationship she's in. That's the thing I got. But also willing to work hard within it to be a part of it. And they were so young. Now, Camille got into making cakes, uh, and she was good. I've known a few people over the years that are like, I want to make cakes. And yeah, I've known a few people like and, that. Yeah. And you, <laughs> they tell you, they're like, I want to make cakes. I've got this vision for cakes and making them. And, you know, I, I often, like I imagine you, hear them out. Yeah, and I hear them out, and I look at their cakes, and I'm like, you got some work to do. But Kamel, I thought, was really good at these cakes. I think she should have stuck with cake baking. Right, if she'd come to me and said, I've, I've got a dream for making cakes, I would have said, your cakes are good. Maybe this would have been a completely different movie. A cake state. A cake state. <laughs> I sense a parody film that you're working on. 
Well, I'm trying to sell. Do you I'm, know any cake-related conspiracies? We're going to make the trailer first for a cake state, and we're going to try to sell it. Ah. And then get some funding. That's how you to do write it. the script. Yeah. David films the trailer from 2010 to the summer of 2012. And Comel, he has no money. Any Every resource he has, he's put into just making this trailer in the hopes that this trailer will get him money. So Kamel's dietitian job is the only job that's supporting the entire family. I love that scene when they're filming where they give the kid a, a polite applause for doing so well in the, the, the scarring of the arm scene. They, they do the... The shot where they scar the kid's he, yeah, arm. Right, I think right before that, uh, Dave, one of David's friends says in an interview post for this documentary that I guess was filmed for the documentary, he says, David was so great with kids. He could even <laughs> get kids to do what he wanted. Speaking of kids, his kid, there's a couple of scenes where she is kind of ranting on and talking about blood and violence. You, you You're starting to get the vibe that she's... I mean, starting, uh, but you're getting the vibe that she is absorbing a lot of heavy themes and a lot of right. things that's being discussed into the home. Yeah, she, st- she starts, much like her parents, ranting and raving, right? Yes. <laughs> She's try- That's what children do. They mimic their parents because that's where they get the idea of how to be adults. And she starts going on about blood and all the blood, yes. and there'll be blood everywhere, and then the blood will have blood on the blood. And you're like, what? What am I watching? And they just keep – they don't interrupt and say, now, honey, you know that this is you can t- fantasy, right? They just think it's highly entertaining that their daughter is going on and on about da- all these violent images. Dave is not in the, sho- in the shot, but I assume he's nodding enthusiastically off screen. And this is where I think we get the uh, – much like most documentaries, it's made up of different talking heads. And we get this local reporter, right? Is he local or national reporter? I can't I – He was a local Fox reporter for Minneapolis, I believe. And he has – you know, he often is the context – for the film because they go to him to have an unbiased opinion on what the events are are and what has transpired. And I think he is the one who first got the footage, right? Yes. So I'm, he must know. And he actually had some very, a very sobering things to say regarding it. it. It was weird. He was probably more of a voice of reason within this documentary. You wanted more voices of reason in this doc, and he was one of the very few. Yeah, I think his take is here she is. Yeah. Saying of these things because look at her parents yes. <laughs> and look what she's been surrounded by. They finish the trailer and they screen it at what appears to be a local bar in October of 2012. And they managed to raise through Indiegogo $61,533, which is more than enough to cover the cost of writing the script. The Grey State trailer becomes a big hit, especially of conspiracy theorists who fear the new world order. And so that, and that is exactly the audience he was going for. And they eat it up like candy, basically. There's a scene where David is watching Alex Jones on his laptop and he's getting pumped up. I I get the feeling that David wasn't the kind of guy that just sat quietly and just had a thought and did not convey it. I think he was a guy that was (laughs) very outward with everything that hit his head. We get a lot of footage of David in his office, his bunker. 
Look like his basement. Yeah, it seems like he's playing at soldier. He's kind of dressed up in army fatigues, kind of play acting that he's back in the military. I don't know. And he's not shooting anything. I mean, well, he's filming himself, but this isn't the movie. He's literally just filming himself, pumping himself up with Alex Jones. Himself watching, yeah, Alex Jones. It's very, yeah, it's it's very strange. And they actually do a little work with Alex Jones. and Yeah, you briefly see Alex Jones is in the film and you hear him say, you have permission to use my, permission to use my likeness. Alex Jones likes this trailer like all of his, I approve. Like his audience does. Yeah. And they go to what I, what I think is a Ron Paul festival. I think it was called Paul Fest and it had like a guitar on the logo. Yeah. Is this any relation to Logan Paul? Logan Paul, I'm not sure if Logan Paul was there, but... But that's Ron Paul's children, right? Rand Paul, Logan Paul. And Aaron Paul, right? That's what the other guys... I think so. Yeah, I think they're all connected. And there, it, it, I don't know if you <laughs> remember this. It was a very brief shot. There was a dude, he had like a rebel flag. Looked like he had his back pocket, like a small one. And he was dancing like he was at a Rusted Root concert at this Paul Fest. <laughs> it was it was strange. Yeah, Libertarians. Send me on my way. The libertarians love Rusted Root. David is starting to look very burnt out because this trailer's come out. It's a hit amongst the, his, the audience he's going for. And he's constantly out traveling and going on radio shows, going to Paul Fest, where it rocks all night long. He's Skyping a lot. Skyping. Skyping will drain you. Skyping is aware. And he's burnt. He's getting, you can tell he's visibly being burnt out. And But his paranoia, if, if you thought it couldn't get any higher, seems to be going up. Then at this time, they claim that they knew no real marriage problems between him and Camille, but they do acknowledge that when he was gone for a while, it was pretty rough. And Camille, she didn't have a lot of friends. She maybe had one real friend. This was stated by her colleague that she worked with. The friend and colleague stated that she had expressed desire to make more friends, but that David maybe would get in the way of a lot of friendships. You know, you have someone over for tea, this guy is uh, wants to force you to watch him clean his guns or something. Yeah, I can imagine uh, David being the type to make you watch Alex Jones with him or something. Yeah. Oh, you got to wake up, sheeple. Oh, and you don't know about the gold standard? Comel's friends allude. Well, it's not an allude. They pretty much say it, that David is controlling. And given the way he is, from what we've seen, that it's not too much of a stretch. Now, he goes to Hollywood with a script and he gets a development deal with a group called the Michael entertainment group. They're based out of Los Angeles, uh, Detroit and right. New York. It's two guys named Michael, right? Two guys named Michael and just a brief description here from their uh, website. Michael Baggio, one of the Michaels has been the entertainment industry for 17 years. A little bit of a typo there. They also misspelled career, like it's spelled carrier. Now we also have Michael S. O'Donnell, which I think was the SNL writer, right? No? Okay. They sit and they talk to the two Michaels, and the, the Michaels are very complimentary about David. They talked about how sincere that they thought he was, how he seemed so driven, and how serious he was about wanting to put this film together. Oh, Michael Entertainment Group, you mean the 
the people behind the fell. The I, I guess the UK the, punk group, right? Uh, oh no, is that you, Michael? You're thinking of the fall. That's another Michael in that band, right? The producers are asked by the director if they thought that David was lying to them when they were in the meeting. They seemed a little confused by the question. They immediately were like, "No, not at all. This guy, this guy." If he was acting, he was the best actor I've ever seen. I think that's one of the quotes, right? Yes. This guy was the best actor. Turns out he was also a director. I didn't know that. The director then plays audio. One of those audios of David out loud. I don't know why he's recording all of this, but I guess it's convenient for a documentary that he is. And I don't know what this says about me, but this is the part of the film where I found it difficult to watch. This was kind of a painful scene for me. David is vocalizing out loud about going to this meeting with the Michaels, and he expresses a, a, a distrust for this company and is and is questioning their credibility and is voicing his desire to basically, he states it as if he's going to be manipulating this group to get money. And the producer is psyching himself up. Yes, he is. He's psyching himself up. And the producers go from praising the ground this guy walks on to calling him a psycho and are saying that they're blatantly insulted by this person. Right. And I'd have to agree with them that he's a psycho. Oh. He's might not be a, he might not be a psycho, but he is in a state of psychosis. What you get from David Crowley, my idea, what I take away is that this man is going through a manic phase. Yes. He may be undiagnosed, but he clearly has a bipolar disorder of some kind. Now, David relishes his manipulations on recording and cites an audience that responds easily to the New World Order conspiracy. He references uh, an audience that you just say New World Order and they'll open their wallets right up, which is kind of interesting. It's like where he becomes aware, more aware at this point. Now, what's the phrase that gets you to open your wallets right up? Do you have a dollar? Yeah, let's see. I got some money. I'm a generous guy. <laughs> I'd be like, here's some Spider-Man comic books. Comic Spider-Man? Is, is, Spider that, is that what does it? You know, Spidey. If gets anyone them. says Spider-Man to me, I just open my wallet. Sp Unless you follow the word Spider-Man with the phrase homecoming. It was a fun movie. Three and a half, Clint Howard's. <laughs> Three and a half, huh? Yeah. And now, David, this is kind of the first time... He seems separate from being within this way of conspiracy thought and more into looking outside of it, looking in, in a way that's like, like he understands how easily these people can be manipulated. He's got an audience that is obsessed with uh, yeah. self-reliance and survivability, right. but also ready to blame every problem on someone else. That's kind of the contradiction with the, with the, these guys. So one part is respectable and the other is childish. Like, I think it's fine if you want right. to. Right. It's interesting that we'll call it, this movie is called a gray state because the hero, the, the subject matter, it's all about black and white, like good and evil. But that's not the way of the world. No. Trying to realize that David is a little gray. My wife and I were discussing this. She had mentioned how David is, in the end, a manipulator. What I really think is that in his head, David was seeing that he could fail in making this project. Yeah. And to kind of like talk shit about his audience, his core audience, and the people that he's trying to pitch this to. Right. Is a way to steal himself from this failure. Right. Because in his head, he also has the fan of this type of 
material is he's he's his own worst critic i think you you don't necessarily get that idea except with context but he's not going to meet his expectations of what this film can be ever because yeah. it's built, been built up into this huge campaign and it's more of the crusade now of a gray state. And it's not the film gray state is never going to live up to what his ideas to, are. It, or the expectations of his audience, at least how he Truly. sees it. David discusses how he goes to a dark place with some friends and says to the friends, you ever see me going into this dark place? Say something. Kamel, according to her colleagues, says Kamel suddenly wants to split her business. She wants to break away from this shared business she's got with her friend and go out on her own. Right. And start seeing her clients and not meeting with any of the rest. Yeah. Of the she would go into the buildings and they'd barely see her. She'd just go through the back door right. and come out. And for a family that was, who feared a technocracy or a conspiracy, they sure had a lot of tech. David's engaging in his Facebook group and blocking people that are saying anything negative about the project. He, and now, this is 101 when you're a creative person. Yeah. As you don't feed into this crap. You're going to have detractors. Yeah, it's Especially just going to happen. when your profile gets larger and larger and more and more focuses on what you're doing. In a lot of ways, it's like a sign of success when you get a lot of people out there putting you down. The quality of whatever it is is always up to the individual, but it's just going to happen. And it just seems particularly naive and immature to directly go after people individually and react to every negative right. thing that's said online. And he's also... Now, David, he had firsthand experiences of the things that he's concerned about when he went overseas. And that's the difference between a lot of his fan base at this point. Most of his fan base do not have the experiences that he had. They're just kind of guys behind a keyboard who are amazing in their own heads, but maybe didn't it didn't work out in the military or they tried to join the police department and failed. Uh, I've met people like this before. Right. And they're not, and guys like David within this kind of thing, they're not as that common. Most people are just dudes behind a keyboard who rant and rave and are just paranoid in their own bubble. They're not like David who actually had experiences that put him in this direction. So there's a rift right there. At their child's birthday party, people are starting to know, notice a disconnect between David and Kamel. They're sensing real tension in the air. Nothing's really being discussed out loud, but David is still recording a lot of shit, a lot of ranting and raving, recordings of who knows even at this point what the fuck he's talking about. He talks to friends about a spiritual conversion to transcendental consciousness and discusses being prepared for spiritual warfare. So not only... Are they worried about... Right. They're not only worried about the gray state or whatever Alex Jones is talking about. They're now uh, fully into Art Bell interview subject territory. Yes, where spirits can attack their soul from the right. inside. And there's a point where, I guess, they're filming Camille and she's possessed by some spirit as well. She, Yeah, she's having this belief. And they're becoming fully isolated at this point. Right. Kamel's not, they're not going, they're not seeing anybody but each other. They're trying to avoid people as much as possible. She's vocalizing these thoughts that some spirit form is attacking them or stalking them. And boy, that's not good. Yeah, at this point, the film gets very dark. And all, we don't have much light to look at because it's all it's getting depressing. Bleak. David shuts down, disappears from social media. He asks his uh, 
co-creator and friend Danny to give over his film rights. And Danny's like, no. And then so da- there's recordings of David talk or right. diary entries of David talking about how he may need to now take Now we keep Danny going out. to the father now, and he's kind of reading from David's diary entries. The filmmaker's like, hey, why don't you read from your dead son's diary entries? <laughs> I know, and he doesn't. And I think that this father's still in a state of shock. Yes. I don't... I'm still in a state of shock. Yeah. Camille's sister drives from Texas. She hasn't talked to... Her sister hasn't seen her in a long time. Drives to the house. David answers the door. He won't let her in. I don't believe she sees her sister again after that. I think that dad reads a diary entry that says, Camille got raptured today. She's still here. Bizarre. Yeah, and now we're getting an idea that the filmmaker is kind of letting in the interview subjects on exactly what's happening. We start to get their reactions to these events. Because at the beginning of the film, we have some notion that that the friends might think that there is a vast conspiracy potentially around the death. There's a lot of unexplained things to the general public, to the friends, and maybe to the family. Maybe not as much to the family. I think the family kind of understands what happened. Uh, David's father has played uh, some strange audio where Kamel, it's hard to hear her at first, but she's discussing a vision. She says that there's nothing there, but she feels a spirit. It was kind of hard to make out what they were saying. Right. They play video after the fact, right? We see their follow-up. Because now David is taken to documenting the spiritual warfare that's happening. She claims some spirit is looking at them and that they, the whole family, might have to leave. Where they're going to go from spiritual warfare, well, you can probably, I mean, we said what happened. One thing that cements for me that it definitely is a murder-suicide, because it is, is that the dog didn't get killed. The idea that uh, an Islamic extremist would come in and do this makes no sense. Why wouldn't they shoot the hyperactive, loud dog? David, it stated, loved the dog almost more than anything. He chose consciously to not shoot the dog, but he would shoot his wife and kid and then literally write, Allah Akbar on the wall. I mean, the guy had gone into full psychosis. He maybe had some reason in his mind for doing that, but that doesn't make it, it's it's not going to maybe make that much sense to us. And, you know, I think the tragedy is that his wife is just completely along for it. We don't get any notion that she's taking a pause from this. She's fully in it too. She kind of enters the psychosis state as well. And David, he seems to be, showing um, signs of schizophrenia, but it seems almost convenient that Kamel would too. You can only assume David does have control of everything. He's not letting her sister even into the house. Uh, His friends and family are saying that he's looking rough. They're saying, hey, David, I think you're going into that dark place. You can tell that his personality and his will is just dominating this entire house. And so Kamel is essentially... And no doubt she loves her husband very much, is just basically a mental prisoner of his paranoia and his whims. And she's right along with him the whole time. The friends and the family, the people who knew him very well, they're all pretty much, it's a murder-suicide. And it's just internet people are saying it wasn't. Right, it's a little convenient. Yeah. Why would he write Allah Akbar 
And why would uh, Alex Jones fan murder suicide himself? They're perfect, and there's nothing ever wrong with anybody that would be friends with Alex Jones. But also, David had a song that was playing on a loop. Right, no, not just a song. He had a playlist, like a 15-hour playlist. Yes, but they said a specific song was on a loop. I think that a song... It crashed and it kind of right. Is uh, that what happened? Maybe I, I they feel said like that's it, what happened. That he had a whole playlist, and they can also like determine maybe when it went something. I understand getting obsessive about uh, making a playlist. I'm guilty of that. But this is maybe taking it a little too far. You got to make a playlist for your murder suicide. But one song that was featured prominently at, towards the end of this film was a song called "Fall Behind" by Moses Mayfield, which was a song that was looping. When the police came in, say what you want about David, whether you believe he did this or didn't, you can respect how driven he was. He seemed like a guy that could get things done, but also suffered greatly when there was some doubts to that. But he also had terrible taste in music. I think this kind of music, it's got to be like my least favorite kind of music ever. What, what would you call this? I've heard it called like butt rock or something. Butt rock? That's what you just, that's what you call any rock you don't like, right? It's called butt rock. I guess so. <laughs> More like bro rock. Bro rock. This is bro rock. Like Creed or Three Doors Down. I'm trying to not say yeah. Nickelback because or, that's cliche, but. You know, a little bit of a John Mary kind of a thing. John Mary. Mayer. I don't know anything about music. Sorry. Can't help you. <laughs> yes, you do. You know a lot about music. <laughs> hey, let's do, let's do a little game. I'm going to be the producers of this documentary, mm-hmm. and you play Moses Mayfield. Ring, 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 ring. Hello? Uh, yes, is this Moses Mayfield? Speaking. Uh, yeah, Moses. Oh, it's great to hear from you. How are you doing today? I'm having a great day. That's wonderful. Well, we we wanted to talk to you because we're really into this song, Fall Behind. We want to use it for our uh, documentary called... Say no more, say no more. I don't want to hear anything about the subject matter or anything of the documentary. Uh, okay. Just put my song in your movie. Thank you, sir. I don't think you'll regret it. And uh, when will I expect my check? I gotta go. Like, oh, that's, that's weird. Yeah. Well, I'll just go back to my great day. So now this guy, you know he had to approve the song being used. I wonder if the... the I wonder f- if he's seen this documentary <laughs> or if he knows that this guy was listening to his song. I wonder if the thought, this is my big break, uh, entered his head. I'm sure this song is not about murder-suicide, but it's pretty much going to be linked into that forever, in my mind. Because most people who are, who've heard that song are going to be the people who are watching. I looked up that song on YouTube, and it had 5,000 hits. And then I was just peeking at the comment thread for fun. And there was a lot of responses from people who'd gone to that song because of this movie. <laughs> and so so there was, like, comments where it was like, oh, this song is, oh, this song is so sad and inspiring. It's like... It's not inspiring. He played it on a loop to kill his wife and kids. This makes this song the opposite of inspiring. And separate from that, it's just not a good song. It's like typical gross. You watch this movie and think, this is an inspiring film. Something's wrong with you. I felt some hints of inspiration at the beginning. When things are seem more humanized, yeah, I mean, this here the inspiring thing is that this guy had a great family, a great life, potentially. Right. That's where it ends, though. He had a lot of a potential. He had a lot of potential. This is a guy whose life ended tragically. Kind of like how Jim Jones had a lot of potential. Like no, he could have brought no, let's a lot not of equate the two. 
He could go there. Jim Jones had the ability to bring a lot of people together and then just Look, lost uh, it. A love for Kool Aid is where it begins and ends with the two of them. Okay, this is not a Jim Jones. This this David Crowley, I see him as a tragic figure. There's there's not a decent mental health system in this country, and yeah, it's true. In a way, the uh, New World Order let David down. Crowley down. Yeah. But, of course, you, would you figure David Crowley is the type of person to be like, I think there's something wrong with my head. I'm going to go uh, check into this facility. Right. Well, he might, but I don't know that they would necessarily help him. <laughs> the current state of things, we, we, just don't, we just don't know how to deal with people like David Crowley in the system. And the system chews people like David Crowley up and spits them out. It's hard to say whether he had any legitimate kind of mental disorder or if it was just – the constant paranoia and the way he thought that just drug him into this. Because this guy is afraid of government forces, communist forces, uh, destroying his way of life. But the guy just ends up being a terrorist in his own home, basically. Yeah. He never would realize it, but he is he is the biggest problem in his life. That's sad. Yeah. The dog lives, by the way. Yeah, that's the... That's the- <laughs> That's the inspiring part, I guess, you get at the end of the movie. You kind of had to... see the dog. Hey, the dog that he loved is still alive. Yeah, there's slow motion shots of the dog while the song Fall Behind by Moses Mayfield is playing. It's about the best you could get in terms of inspiration. Stuart, thank you for sitting through this movie. God. Appreciate it. Yeah. I'm not going to thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Say you're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. Now, this movie's a downer. <laughs> what are you planning? What are you planning? You're looking off in the distance like you're planning something. This is a downer of a movie. So what I need you to do is to tell me an inspirational story, something positive, before you give your rating of one through five Herzogs. One time, I went to this bookstore, and I met this cool guy. He was working at the register, and he told me that Roger Corman movies are pretty cool. And he's been meaning to check out this film that I was purchasing. And as I drove home, past the Jack and Box, past the Burger King, past the McDonald's, and past the Subway to my house, I thought, wow, life is pretty cool sometimes. And sometimes you meet a cool guy who knows other stuff that's cool and tells you about cool things. And you think... Hey, that's pretty cool. Maybe someday I'll start a podcast with that guy. That's a that's a passing thought that I have. Uh, and here we are. Yeah. You and me. So new tomorrow. I think we're in for big things. Just don't fall behind. I'm not. I'm not gonna fall. I'm, why would I fall behind? How many hurt songs would you give this film? Oh. Look. I don't recommend anyone see this film. (laughs) Really, you shouldn't see this film. You should maybe read the Wikipedia article, maybe read a review of the film, maybe listen to our podcast episode about the film and think to yourself, do I want to go any deeper? How has my look? Do you want to ruin your Sunday? Then watch this movie. (laughs) Your Sunday morning. Yeah, you're, you're having a Sunday morning. It's real nice. Everything's great. Your friend's demanding you watch a movie called Your friend a says, State. hey, you should watch this movie, A Gray State. You know, you, you, that's how you know your friend really cares about you. Actually, don't watch A Gray State. I'm going to give it zero Herzogs. Whoa. Wow. 
You, this is a z- no no measure of quality you can find in this whatsoever. I think it's sadistic. I think they tried. They tried to glean a positive message out of this story. And it's a cautionary tale. But I don't think it's necessarily one that any of us need to know. You don't think that could help someone who's deep into some conspiratorial way of thinking to be like, wait a minute, this dude. Right. That's what I think. That's what I think. This is a trap. This is a trap set for right wing conspiracists trolling through Netflix, looking for a film. They see, oh, oh, a movie about right wing conspiracies. Because that's what I thought when I looked at the little (laughs) Netflix blurb. It was like, oh, cool. Hmm. Hmm. I've always wondered about I've always been curious about Breitbart news or whatever. <laughs> Maybe I'll check this out. Steve Bannon, I want to be as handsome as him one day. <laughs> I wear two shirts at the same time. <laughs> huh. Maybe this will explain why Steve Bannon wears two shirts at the same time. I don't think I've ever noticed, but I'm not I don't find myself like looking a lot at Steve Bannon. Look, Steve Bannon I know he's handsome, that's it. Two shirts. Oh you're right. He wears two shirts Two button-up shirts. At the same time. As well as a t-shirt underneath. Why does he do that? I think it's because he's cold. Always cold? Wait a minute. Look. Let's look Let's look at this through Alex Jones's eyes. Steve Bannon is a reptilian. Clearly, the eyes, look at them, very pointy, right? I, he's probably always he's cold-blooded. He can't regulate his temperature properly. Now, Stewart is looking through images of Steve Bannon and stumbled across a gif of Joey from Friends wearing multiple articles of clothing. That's a that's a handsome man. See, Steve Bannon to me looks like uh, Mitt Romney that's been left out in the sun. Well, what's your take on this movie, Bobby? I want to hear it. Well, you gave it zero stars. You're a documenteer, born and bred. I have born, to respect yes. your opinion. Yes. I think I got a lot more out of it. I don't know what it is. I have a, my wife and I, we watch a lot of true crime shit. I think it, maybe it steals me more for this kind of stuff. I'm kind of sad to say I'm a little used to uh, tackling depraved subject matter. I think there is like some lessons you can glean from this movie. So I'm going to give it. I want to rate it higher because our demigod, Werner Herzog, is the executive producer. But I got to give it, I'm going to give it a straight, solid, down the road, three out of five Herzogs. Three out of five? Yes, I'm giving it. I think it's a serviceable film. Is this, this, this may not be a movie for everyone. Okay, how like much you. of this is based on Werner Herzog being the producer of this film? It, that gives it minimum two. Okay, so really it's one and a half. Stars. I got to keep the faith. Because I'll tell you, I didn't hear Werner any, at any point in this movie. That might have brought up my rating. If I'd heard a Werner go, yes, and then what happened? What happened with the gray state after this thing that you say? Are we, are we ever going to watch a Werner Herzog film? Of course we are. I don't know. It's just a matter of which one we're going to start with. You know, Mitt Romney kind of looks like Bruce Campbell. Stewart's so looking Campbell, at pictures of to Mitt, Mitt Romney, Romney. To Steve Bannon. That's that's the evolution. I'm going to have to get you off the internet here. I love the internet. So you give it zero stars. I give it three stars. You merge our ratings together. That gives it a gray state. <laughs> three out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're wild, bro. Dude. <laughs> You're just looking at pictures of Trump now. <laughs> it's Benjamin Netanyahu and uh, Donald Trump. They're, they're like homeboys. They look like homies from way back. <laughs> I'm... Okay, sorry to interrupt. Watch out for weather-controlling satellites and watch your ass from the New World Order. And for fuck's sake, 
Don't kill your family. Jesus. Stay sweet. That's what you're going to close on? Now, I filmed the trailer from 2010. What the? Bobby, you need to turn off your phone. I know.